Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Digital Foundry for this, the 143rd edition of DF Direct Weekly. And it's the last one, <laughs> the last one of 2023 anyway. Um, we're going to be going off on holiday very, very shortly. Uh, but we've got business to address, tons of news stories this week. And joining me to discuss them, first of all, Oliver McKenzie. Hello. Hey, hey, Rich. Always a pleasure to be here on this very last DF Direct of the year. So let's go out with a, with a bang. <laughs> And of course, John Linneman. Yes, it will be the last of us for 2023. <laughs> we'll see what happens Absolutely. next year. Hopefully it's uh, just as good or better. Absolutely. Alex sends his apologies. He's just a bit busy today. We're all a bit busy today, but well, let's crack on with the first news story. So this one kind of highly unfortunate. Uh, and um, the amount that we're going to be talking about it is going to be somewhat limited. Um, but essentially, it's pretty much common knowledge now that um, a couple of weeks back, uh, Insomniac was hacked and uh, a ransomware demand was made, something like $2 million worth of Bitcoin in exchange for the information not being released. Uh, Sony and Insomniac didn't pay the ransom and the information was released, something like uh, 1.6, 1.7 terabytes of data uh, probably uh, the most damaging leak I think I can ever remember. Um, it's actually caused a lot of soul searching, I think, from um, uh, the games media in particular. I'm wondering how to address this, how to actually cover uh, what is like possibly one of the, well, certainly one of the biggest stories of the year. Um, it's a tricky one. Now, typically, um, we don't really cover this sort of stuff because, well, fundamentally, um, you want, as a journalist, first-hand knowledge of the material in order to accurately report on it, in which case, certainly in this case, and in several others, actually, that we haven't touched, um, you're basically talking about handling stolen goods, <laughs> yeah. which isn't really a good thing to be doing. That said, um, pretty much the entirety of the of the uh, information has now sort of disseminated into the public. There's big Reddit threads, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I'm going to go to you first of all on this one, John. Um, mm. It's it's devastating for Insomniac. Um, pretty much everything that you could possibly want to know about their business is now mm -hmm. out in the public domain. Um, I think the thing which is causing a lot of people to think twice about even touching this is the fact that it's not just corporate information that is included in all of this files. It's personal stuff from Insomniac staff. Mm -hmm. um, thoughts? Yeah, I mean, this is pretty much... On that note, it's very similar to the 2020 Capcom leak where the same kind of information was leaked out about employees as well. And that stuff's always really nasty. Or the ESA leak, which was uh, good fun. Thanks, guys. Uh, yeah. But that that side of things is obviously very nasty, and that's unfortunate, especially when it's like a first-party kind of studio because I feel like, you know, that, that really winds people up. So who knows what will happen there. But, mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's just, 
These hacks have become more and more common, obviously, unfortunately. We've definitely seen, seen some big ones. And I think when you say this one's the worst one yet, uh, I guess that would probably come to the fact that beyond all the, the personal stuff released, they also, there's also builds of things out there that shouldn't be out there. Just There's just stuff. There's things that you usually don't see from it. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Although on that front, I guess the closest I can think of is something like the Half-Life 2 leak, but that was just the game files right yes not, that's right not anything beyond that but still mm-hmm. so this kind of has the worst of <laughs> it's like combining capcom and then the half-life 2 league from valve all those years ago into one big thing which is and uh, the microsoft no ftc thing and the microsoft <laughs> ftc thing all in one uh which is yeah. like good lord <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's really not good, and I really feel bad for Insomniac. I think there are certain questions that need to be asked about whether uh, games media should be covering it, and I think it's basically going to be down to the individual and and you know their own curation of the information and what they decide to write about. Because you can't, I don't think you can ignore the fact that it happened, no. right? Because as a news editor, for example, you wouldn't be doing your job then. No, Oliver, I'm just curious what you make of this and uh, what the ramifications are in terms of media coverage, etc. Yeah, I mean, I th- I thought that GTA 6 leak, um, I believe last year, was a, was a big leak, but this really dwarfs it. In addition to all the things that were mentioned, you also have, like, a pretty decent uh, video of a vertical slice. You have financials, you have project plans out to 10 years, all kinds of cancel games. It just, it's, it's basically like an Insomniac is like an open book at this point, which is, it feels a weird and a little uncomfortable to be in that position as someone who covers this mm-hmm. kind of stuff. You know, there's no, I guess there's not much surprise <laughs> in what they in what they do. Yeah. In terms of uh, covering it or not covering it, I think it's just a matter of uh, what people are personally comfortable with. I mean, I don't have an opposition to people who are covering it, but I also think that it's uh, just the nature of this kind of hack in particular. It's not like someone just intercepted some stray sql or something it's it's quite an intense hack with uh with a ransom attached so absolutely yeah i mean i think there are some interesting details in here but ultimately this is not the way that i would have preferred to have learned them yeah absolutely i'm going to go to some supporter questions now because um i think there's some quite salient points coming up here we'll take this one from robert brown first of all how do you decide what information is and isn't ethical to draw from a leak. I heard you reference Jensen's prophecies a number of times. Is that similar to the Insomniac leak, or are there important differences? Um, so on the uh, the DF Direct docket here, I actually tracked down the original Jensen's prophecy leak, and it was literally a guy who wasn't particularly happy about all of these <laughs> games on GeForce Now actually being removed from the service. And he figured out a way to actually look into the communications between his PC and the server and actually discovered that there were like 1,800 entries and he just shared them. There wasn't really malicious intent there, I don't think. Um, so I don't really see this as being That's the, yeah. anywhere, anywhere near the same sort of level of, uh, of, of sort of nastiness that's going on here. Nobody's going to gain from this by by sharing that information or, or nobody was blackmailing nvidia 
Uh, let's take this question from Eric Hurst. I've seen many people expressing their vitriol towards journalists and reporters giving attention to the leaks from Insomniac with certain notable folk asking people to stop reporting on the leaks and leave Insomniac alone. With several major leaks in recent times, uh, GTA 6, Xbox, Capcom, Genesis Prophecy and more, which by the way have been covered many times by many different outlets, where should the line be drawn in terms of what is reported on and what isn't? I believe it is at best mildly disturbing that people uh, resort to attacking journalists in situations like this. Leaks happen and they can be tragic, and I believe efforts and attention should be directed towards leak prevention and protections for these companies. But that burden is for the parent corporations to bear. It's their responsibility to protect their employees and their work. The last people who should be to blame are the ones who strive to make sure that the facts about games in this industry are reported on and that the information is as accessible as possible to people. Thank you and happy holidays. That one from Eric Hurst. I think, you know, basically, if you are a news editor out there and you're happy with the um, the quality of the information and you have got a specific way that you feel sensitively handles the information, then you're just doing your job fundamentally. That's, mm. that's my sort of take on it. This one from CTG867. John seemed to indicate on Twitter that DF won't be covering the information from the Insomniac hack. I found this strange as last week the team fielded a supporter question in the GTA 6 Direct regarding the Rockstar hack and spoke openly about it relative to the revealed trailer. Is it not inevitable that some aspect of the Insomniac hack will come up in a similar fashion in a future Direct? I guess I just wanted to know uh, the distinction that the team will be making here. Uh, thanks for the great work you do as always. Well, this is a really interesting question because we didn't report on the on the GTA 6 leak at the time. and um, But you can't deny that it exists, that it happened. And also this was a really interesting and almost like a teachable moment in that the, the, the videos that were released at the time basically bear no resemblance to the revealed trailer, trailer that we saw. So, mm. you know, this is actually pointing out you know, that the leaks were, um, uh, you know, it, it was premature to actually see that stuff. Um, but what I will say, John, and I think this is quite interesting, you were talking about the Half-Life 2 game leak from, from decades ago. I do think maybe there is some sort of statute of limitations on, oh, yeah. on, on, on leaks, where actually this stuff becomes almost an artifact of the time. The kind of bitterness and the nastiness is kind of like, mellowed out over the over the over the years do you see what mm, i'm saying absolutely it's become basically a fact of life at that point and again you, you can't really deny it exactly. so i'm cu curious what you think about that yeah the statute of limitations uh, i i don't know how that all shakes out legally but i think that's interesting from like a almost a preservation standpoint because it gives you a look at like software in development and i would say you know the half-life leak for instance I would say that did not impact the reception or sales on the public side. It made no. it was a headache for Valve at the time, just like this will be a headache for Insomniac, obviously. Uh, but in the end, the game was very well received. It's considered a classic. You know, it went on, and that information that came out in the Half Life leak is actually just interesting teachings. It shows a lot about what went into it. It shows how it changed within that year between when it was leaked and when it was released. Uh, and it gives a lot of insight into that sort of thing. Something else, you know, we've seen a lot of games like very early in development, and I think the public often doesn't get that look at it. And I can understand why companies would want to protect that. 
uh, well, for multiple reasons, but one of those reasons is the fact that folks that don't understand what it takes to create these will look at what is released and make assumptions without understanding the pre-release nature of it, right? Like, a game can be playable from start to finish even when, like, most of it is still gray box, where it's just, like, gray textures with, like, the little, you know, uh, pattern running through it. And that could be considered, considered playable from start to finish, but it doesn't look anything like what will actually ship, right? Uh, yeah. That stuff is interesting. It's teachable. But if people, it can also be used uh, in negative ways. But I still think in the end, it won't necessarily impact the success of this. I don't think there's going to be anyone that says, oh, yeah, because of that leak, we're not going to play or buy Wolverine, for instance. <laughs> right? It's, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I don't think that aspect of things is necessarily that harmful long term. And I do think in the future, this stuff can be discussed, but, you know, obviously it's very much in that legal gray zone and we obviously should not go down that path. And we are staying consistent with what we've done in the past. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think yeah. as an aside, you were talking about the NVIDIA stuff. I think there is some confusion there because there's Jensen's prophecy, but there was also like an extra, like an additional hack on NVIDIA that happened a while That's ago, right? right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. That is a separate thing. And I don't believe that has anything to do with the Jensen's prophecy list. No, no, no. I believe so, that was uh, that was some sort of hack on NVIDIA's servers. Right. And, and uh, that was yeah. more like this, basically. Uh, not more as like damaging, this. but it was more like this. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. And um, yeah, we've we've kind of mentioned that one in passing as well in the past, um, specifically because there was a lot of switch to conjecture that came out of it. But ultimately, yeah, that, that's kind of also in a bit of a grey area. Um, I think with this one, it's just the fact that there's, it's just the scale of it is almost yeah. incomprehensible. <laughs> yeah it really is it's, it's it's not like a little bit you know a couple of tidbits here and there about you know the nvn api for <laughs> nvidia it's basically everything everything you know everything that we you know you could even conceive of knowing about insomniac is now out there and it's it's kind of staggering almost and it's it's still weird for uh, like at least for me even to look at these types of situations we're not really news reporters right and i think out of everyone working for df are any of us actually like really trained in terms of like <laughs> journalism i mean i studied programming That's, i worked at you know, uh, a news companies before this but uh okay so a, so you actually do have some links to it yeah <laughs> i sure did not i just did tech stuff and so you know learning how to handle this stuff was always kind of a, a tricky business for me because I had no real insight into it. I just relied on, on rich basically sort of guiding, <laughs> guiding us through. Yes. Cause you've been around yeah. doing this for a long time, but I'm not even, did you actually have any like real training for this or is this the sure. stuff you've learned? Okay. So you've actually studied this stuff in the past. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. okay. Yeah. Um, you know, there's certain things that you just do not do, and <laughs> handling stolen goods is one of them. <laughs> um, uh, but you know, you do reach the point now where it, you know a lot of this stuff is out in the public domain, has been distilled down from the original sources, is now public knowledge, and I think news editors have a very sort of um, big challenge ahead of them oh, yeah. how to cover this. And there's been various takes and responses to it. And um, yeah, that's that's going to be tricky and it will differ, differ on a per outlet basis. Yeah. Um, I do think, though, that 
there has to be some discussion on things that are of public interest, right? And um, without going into specifics, John, I think uh, we've been talking about this for a long time, but the concepts that the, the AAA gaming space is potentially unsustainable in the long term kind of comes into focus with some of the mm. information that came out there. Maybe that's not a discussion we should be having now. In the, in no, not is, necessarily. Because it, it is war. But I, I do think that there are certain elements of this leak that do have a public interest to it that will be starting debates. And um, and it brings certain things which we've been worried about into focus. Um, but it's kind of all I've really got to say about this one at the time. At yeah. this time. It's yeah. really unfortunate. It's also unfortunate to see social media at its worst with um, information being weaponized. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's just everybody has different, like, goals for what they want to do with this stuff or, you know, people yeah. to get angry at. And I think some some of the complaints people have had against those covering it, some of it's valid because there, there are some presenters' sites where it feels like they openly covered, like, the Capcom leak without any sort of issue. But then this suddenly, oh, this is, this is a line too far. We're not going to touch this one even though they're kind of the same thing. So I think there's that consistency problem there that some some very select sites engaged in. Uh, not us, thankfully, which is great. <laughs> but I think that's where a lot of that stuff came from, the vitriol there. But then also, obviously, it's a passionate moment. Uh, a lot of other developers were sticking up for, for Insomniac, of course, as you'd expect. And I think then you have, of course, this, the console warriors, the, <laughs> the usual suspects really going at it. <laughs> On top I'll of everything what, else, we we did cover the Microsoft leak where they essentially yeah. leaked their own documents to the FTC. And yeah, that was a little different everybody. though, right? Because that was not like a stolen hack kind of situation. Yeah. There wasn't a sort of element of nastiness to it. It was this was information that you know just came out by by accident, and the the uh, redacted versions of the documents would have come anyway. So it was just, mm -hmm. yeah, that was the, the difference there. I do think it is a different scenario. Yeah. There. It's like somebody leaving a USB stick, like in a public place and you're just like, oh, what's this? You know? Yeah. Or maybe like when, when the iPhone 4 leaked, if you remember that, where like yeah, somebody yeah. just like left it at a bar and everybody's like taking photos, like what is this thing? <laughs> yeah. I think there are a lot of analogies between <laughs> the Xbox leak and this leak in terms of the scope. I mean, the Xbox leak was a lot smaller than this leak. I mean, maybe broader in terms of the significance of what it was revealing, but that was also indicating future plans. It also had all kinds of financials in it for games, for Game Pass acquisitions, for all kinds of things, right? Mm. The difference is, yeah, that that was basically a, a snafu from a Microsoft lawyer, it seems like, or a lawyer contracted by Microsoft. And this was a very different category of, of, uh, of leak. And then also, like, everything was very abstracted in that document. Like, it's all big picture numbers of how is the Xbox business doing? How are these games doing? Whereas this is like, you know, there's some stuff in here about, like, potential future layoffs, headcounts, things like this. That's just, like, very, you know, very raw material that's uh, quite different from that. So, mm -hmm. yeah. But, I mean, the Xbox leak, it was it was uh, a Microsoft mistake. And it was, it was fascinating to us in particular because it was hardware that it was... Uh, significantly into development yeah. whereas this is just like game footage that is not representative in the slightest of the final product um i don't really have too much more to say about this but obviously um uh you know we're thinking about the insomniac guys at the moment it's it's it i just can't really get my head around the scale of this i mean it is the entire business laid out bare 
And um, I think also there's the danger that there's so much information here and so little context that you don't really understand what's coming your way in a lot of this stuff. You know, it can be misinterpreted as well. Um, yeah, kind of uncomfortable, um, but, but, but there it is. Uh, I think we should move on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, second news story of the week. We're actually a bit late to this. It's not really news. It's actually a release and we didn't really cover it on the main channel, but uh, Oliver and I have been playing this. It is um, the DLC for God of War uh, Ragnarok. And it came out for free a couple of weeks ago. And what can I say, Oliver? Um, this is really good. <laughs> yeah. How come it's free? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why it's free. Sony's goodwill, I, I have no idea. It's <laughs> it's basically kind of like a roguelite take on God of War. And you basically progress, and then when you die, you restart back at the beginning, but you have a mix of permanent and temporary upgrades that aid you along that. And then when you progress to certain milestones, you progress from that point onward, almost like a returnal kind of structure, but like very scaled back from what that game was attempting to do, I think. It's really great. The production values are awesome. It seems to tell from what I can tell, Kratos kind of wrapping up a lot of loose ends from the prior games, in particular, the Greek series of games where he's interacting with some of those characters again. And it seems like they're trying to like tie up that story in anticipation of the next God of War game. Yeah, it's just super fun. The combat is awesome. It still feels great. Uh, I was a little rusty <laughs> to start off with, but yeah. I, once I got the hang of it again, it was just so much fun. And yeah, it's just, it's super exhilarating. And I do have to wonder why they didn't charge some money for this. Because Are the, uh, the maps you explore actually like new locales? They're based off of the existing areas, but they're new, yeah. new maps. And interestingly, right, like, like the areas are the same, yeah. but the actual layouts are new. The layouts are new. The organization cool. of them is new. And each zone is separated from the other zones by like this little gate between worlds thing. But yeah, you yeah, step yeah. into it and then it loads in uh, almost instantly. So I wonder how this scales to PS4. I, I didn't test that out, but I presume it would be a lot <laughs> right. less, a lot less a longer screen probably. Yeah, this is really built for the <laughs> PS5 in that respect, I think. I think uh, one of the reasons why there wasn't really so much interest in us covering it for a main video is that it is the same technology as God yeah. of War Ragnarok. There's not really anything new being added here. It's just a, a gameplay twist, right? There's no real new technology here. The graphics are basically the same as the base game. It still looks terrific. I think like they do some great stuff with their baked lighting here. Lots of more naturalistic mm. kind of environments, lots of rocky shores, outcroppings. Basically, like a lot of the stuff you would have seen in the base game but arranged in like a very artistically pleasing way. And also with some assets from those Greek games or assets that are based on those Greek games, like Greek statues. Again, some characters reappear. I won't spoil too many of them. But um, yeah, it is basically the same technically as the base game. I played on PS5 in the performance mode. It runs at a lock yeah, 60 FPS, just like the base game. Again, it's it's a very uh, well-worn engine <laughs> at this point, and we know what it mm. what it does, and it does all the same things here. So, I think from from my perspective, returning to God of War Ragnarok, it was quite interesting to see uh, just how far quality of art goes, um, because you know this is a game that was designed to run well on the PlayStation 4 generation, right? Yep. And yet, when you see it running on PlayStation 5 at 60 frames per second, you're not feeling at all shortchanged in terms of, you know, the fact it's running on a, a piece of hardware that's a generation beyond that. Mm -hmm. It still looks absolutely terrific. And that's the hallmark, I think, um, of 
uh, a classic game, right? That it, it's just great as a game. And uh, I guess you get your 60 FPS and uh, various other upgrades there, but it's still fundamentally, you know, a game that's going to look, that looks great now and will look great in the future just because of the quality of the art. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Any more to add to this one? I think, you know, fundamentally it's a case that it is free. You, if you own the game, then, you know, you you should be checking it out really. If, yeah. I guess there are sort of uh, certain provisos in terms of spoilers if you haven't finished the main game, but you can access it without having completed the main game. I think that's important to stress as well. Uh, so go check it out, I guess. Yeah. I think one really cool thing too is that just like the God of War combat loop is really compelling, but it lacks a little bit of that um, real kind of like white knuckle intensity that you get from some games where there are greater stakes, like in Souls games. And this adds in some of that intensity because when you start, you have to restart from an earlier area and lose some of your progress. So you really do feel like when you're battling the bosses and you're down to that last liver of health, you really do feel dialed in in a way that I didn't really feel with Ragnarok's main game where you have a pretty generous checkpointing system. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. Um, yeah, I guess that's all we really got to say about that one. Check it out. It's really, really good. Speaking of Sony, there was just some breaking news. Looks like they will not, that uh, those WB Discovery shows that were going to get pulled, they're going to be, they're not pulling them after all. They will still be available <laughs> for those that previously We didn't talk them. about this. Yeah, yeah. We no. didn't talk about this, but this is basically your nightmare scenario for digital yeah, purchases. Exactly. Right? That's, that's why I highlighted it, because... Uh, Although it just says for at least the next 30 months. So who knows what happens in 30 months. But it does seem to be the case where, at least for a while there, these things were just going to disappear for both, you know, uh, consumers that purchased them as well as everybody else. So, and that's that's the difference, right? Delisting of games, unfortunately, does happen. We've seen that plenty of times. But in the past, usually those that purchase the product are still able to access it. They're able to download it. Not always, though, uh, like on the Nintendo side, but that was basically what was happening here. And yeah, you know, Bitchin' Ride Season 4, like, I, I wouldn't be too broken up about losing that. And, you know, you look over this list and there's just some there's some weird stuff in here that you're just like, like Cell Block Psychic. What is that? Like, Shudder to think. I think the key thing about but it's this still there. is the whole... It's, it's not gone now. It's the concept that you're basically paying money and you think you're buying something, whether yep. it's a digital or physical item, but actually you're not. You're you have a license to, yes. to access this mm-hmm. this this hashtag content, which can be revoked uh according to terms and conditions which are laid out by you know the platform holder. Um I'm not sure there's even any sort of legal regulation on this sort of stuff, which I kind of think there should be. Should be, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's, uh, um, that's, you know, obviously I think the, the, the true best preservation for anything is a digital copy of something without any sort of DRM to it, right? That's how you really keep it long-term. But personally, when it comes to usage, that's why I still prefer physical media. You know, technically it's still considered a license, but the chances of anybody walking into your house and snatching away the disc is ex- comically low. That I, you know, it basically is a non-existent threat, right? Mm -hmm. And obviously with these digital purchases, it is possible for them to just shut them down. If they, if, if for whatever reason, if they decide that you are not allowed to access that content anymore, they can do it. Uh, But Mm -hmm. I am at least uh, happy to see that 
things changed on this specific front. Uh, it, that suggests to me that there was enough of a backlash where they decided to uh, change it back. You know what I mean? Mm. So people do actually seem to care, which uh, is encouraging. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that they could have rolled that one through regardless. Absolutely. Um, I think there's... Because the amount of people affected by it probably would have been quite small. And the, yeah, the idea that they're still watching Pitch It Right season four <laughs> years after acquiring that digital license is probably quite slight. I mean, but it's the principle of the matter, exactly. right? Exactly. C. Wizzy ain't going to be uh, take. He needs to watch his bitch and rides. Is what I'm saying. In his bitch and ride. In his bitch and ride. <laughs> Man. Okay, let's move on. Uh, We're going to be sort of staying on the subject of PlayStation just a little bit um, before segueing into an Xbox-related topic. Um, Well, essentially, the news arrived this week that PlayStation 5 um, has hit uh, 50 million units sold in. It's effectively Mm -hmm. keeping pace with uh, the PlayStation 4 generation. Um, There are reports suggesting that it's outsold Xbox Series consoles by a factor of three to one, uh, which which is quite remarkable. Um, meanwhile, there are rumors emerging that um, Xbox is going to bring forward their plans to release a next generation machine to 2026 from the currently mooted 2028. I think there's two components to this story then. Um, Oliver, why do you think PlayStation has, has managed to deliver this commanding lead? Um, and do you think it does necessitate some sort of... Uh, reset button being pressed to xbox which brings forward the next console by two years yeah i mean they've been the market leader the commanding market leader in the prior generation they have a incredible suite of first party games they have enormous mind share uh you know it's the biggest gaming brand on the planet and they've launched some very very successful boxes in the ps4 and ps5 generation just very sensibly made gaming centric boxes that had uh, a lot of hardware power to them and and that are um that are very good machines and that were extremely well designed so i think sony has just been going from strength to strength really and in, in with respect to delivering on the kind of paradigmatic uh, ideal of console hardware <laughs> and what mm. uh, first-party content delivery should look like for that hardware. Microsoft, in contrast, has been you know, trying different strategies um, in order to try to break that mold. So they had, you know, you had an early console launch in the 360 generation. You had a focus on media and entertainment in the uh, Xbox One generation. Then you had the bifurcated console strategy in this generation, trying to undercut Sony on the low end. Um, so far, you know, those strategies have had mixed results, more successful in the 360 generation, less successful thereafter. I think that, you know, all the rumors about Microsoft potentially launching a console in 2026, those fall into the same mold, where you have to expect that if Microsoft wants to make up ground here, they have to zig where Sony zags, so to speak, and they have to do something that is interesting and that could potentially reclaim some market share that could lead them to become the, you know, a more dominant console platform. So I think that at least the theory behind it would be something like that. Um, the actual, you know, in practice, would that work out? And is it actually feasible based off what we know off there uh, from their roadmap? I don't think so, but, you know, that's a different story. Mm. I think in terms of this uh, three to one ratio, all I can say is, you know, when I look at um, uh, online retail stores this year, basically from the summer onwards, Sony has been 
super, super aggressive in uh, discounting the PlayStation 5. Um, you know, it's been up to £100 cheaper than the Xbox Series X um, in the UK on Amazon Ooh. a number of times, right? It really makes the purchasing decision a lot simpler at that point, um, especially when so much of the uh, of the catalogue of games is shared between the two systems. And then meanwhile, with Xbox Series S, um, yeah, I mean, it's still uncomfortably priced compared to PlayStation 5, which, you know, you're basically paying £100 more for a lot more performance and, you know, access to the PlayStation library. Obviously, there's there's a great argument for having a really cheap box. Um, and and I, I think that strategy might not have sort of been borne out in terms of sales, but I do think it's it has value, particularly in terms of um, opening up Game Pass to more people. Um, but I, I don't know. I think from my perspective, it's just I'm just not seeing the hunger for Microsoft to sell consoles en masse in the way that Sony has. Um, I'll talk about the 2026 Xbox stuff in a bit, but I'm curious what you think about this, John. Yeah, this is a weird generation because it did start during the first year of the pandemic. And we noted that did have some impacts on on things releasing over the following three years. Right. Um, but when I actually look at what they've both done this generation, it it's one of the slowest and least interesting beginnings to yeah, the console absolutely. generation I can ever remember. Uh, and I would say that while Sony's done a good job, they've done much, much better in the past. I actually think their, their lineup of games while good is extremely narrow and there's not actually that many. And they've kind of lost what I think made PlayStation one and two and even three so special. Uh, it's literally Mm -hmm. just like big trip away stuff over and over again. And not that often. I mean, they do have some smaller games as well, thankfully, uh, and they do get behind some indie studios as well, but it's it's really not like the loss of Japan Studio and all their Japanese developers is it it's still raw. Uh, this would have been like when you look at the at the strategies here, it's Microsoft really had a chance to make a big play this generation, right? I think PS Five would have been a success regardless, but I think this is a somewhat weaker Sony that was less positively viewed by the hardcore online uh jim ryan himself wasn't a great face for the company regardless of what he was doing on the business side which they seem to be doing very well business-wise but it didn't they didn't quite have that same like uh the mind share i guess and i feel like microsoft somehow just they failed to capitalize on this moment like they did with say the xbox 360 right and this really got me thinking about Xbox in general. I've been playing my Xbox 360 again, uh, thanks to the RetroTINK, actually, the RetroTINK 4K, since you can just run that in there and get perfect near scale, scaling and everything. It looks awesome. And I, I'm just astounded at how strong the library, the the aggressiveness of Microsoft during the Xbox 360 era. That is a an amazing platform. I would say it's like a top five of all time kind of console when you look at what was happening there. And Mm -hmm. they came, they did that because they were hungry. They, they know what Sony was doing to PS2. Sony was very arrogant with the launch of PS3 and they made a lot of missteps along the way. And Microsoft, they, aside from the red ring thing, obviously, which is, which was a problem. 
they came out swinging and they delivered big. And that's, I felt like they were trying to set that up with Xbox Series X. You remember like this, that many E3s ago when they first revealed Halo Infinite, right? And then it starts to get closer and you're like, wait, they're going to, they're going to launch a new Halo with this new Xbox. It felt like yeah. a fresh start for Halo. It felt like a fresh start for Xbox. It felt like that's what they wanted to do, but they just couldn't get there for any number of reasons. Uh, Halo especially could not get there. And it's not anything like what was first shown, unfortunately, even though the game itself is still good. Um, and I feel like that, that moment, that launch moment was was like that that's where they messed up like there wasn't really any exclusive reason to jump on the xbox series consoles at launch uh they they were extremely cross-gen at the beginning and while sony did shift towards cross-gen they didn't actually start out that way right there was a lot of mm. exclusive stuff just for ps5 that excited people plus things like spider-man at launch you know whatever that excites people too Xbox didn't have that moment, even though it has great games on it. They're largely available elsewhere, including on older Xboxes. And somehow it just didn't, the excitement wasn't there, I think in the general public. Uh, mm. And at the same time though, they have this healthy business with game pass and it almost feels like it's, it's a separate kind of thing from selling consoles almost at odds with it. Right. Like this whole, we need to move consoles. We need to, to get people to buy these big games versus like join the service. We don't care where you play. Just like if you're a member of the service, if you're playing the games in there, that's enough. And so it almost feels like there's two Xboxes. There's two directions they could go at this point. And I'm curious to see what they do. And, can they get to the point where they're doing both the big console numbers, but also have the big subscription numbers? Maybe. Mm, I don't know. And that's, that's where we get into the 2026 stuff, right? Yeah. Um, well, the whole <laughs> 2026 stuff's been going on for a while now where people, I think there's a certain degree of wish fulfillment with it because, you know, essentially Sony has won this console generation. Whether that actually means anything in the context of the broader business is another thing entirely. Right. But, you know, people love competition and we're not kind of seeing it at the moment in the console space. It seems to be one-way traffic. And... Um, uh, so yeah, it kind of came to a head recently with the, um, there was a post on uh, Reset Era, which was basically bogus PlayStation 5 Pro <laughs> specs. Uh, this was a, quite an interesting thing because um, when a certain amount of information is leaked about a new console that is well sourced, and I think at this point you can't really argue against Tom Henderson's sources in terms of mm -hmm. Sony, a larger amount of information can be extrapolated from the smaller amount of information based on what you know of the building blocks of AMD mm -hmm. hardware. And there were some things in there that just didn't look right. A lot of things which kind of did look right, but stuff that just didn't make sense, like a lower GPU clock than, yeah, that, uh, yeah. than the PlayStation 5. That that just kind of That's nonsensical. Happen. That wouldn't work for backwards compatibility, especially. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. a bit odd. And um, basically one of the key sort of sources for PlayStation 5 Pro information, Kepler underscore L2 on Twitter, basically poo-pooed that information gave some new information about the uh, makeup of the SOC, the Viola SOC, as it's known, but then mooted that, well, that actually, I don't think they're going to be releasing a six nanometer Xbox. I think they're going to be skipping straight to the next generation. And um, there's a few things that I've got some issues with, with that. The concept of scrapping a six nanometer Xbox doesn't seem to make sense to me because 
um, surely the reason they're making those machines is because they want to lower the unit cost, you know, the, the build of materials. And they're actually really late in coming to six nanometer mm -hmm. uh, from the seven nanometer in the current console. And I suspect that's because they're starting to see um, actual savings by moving to that node. So the concept of sticking with seven nanometer for two more years I don't know. It doesn't sit right with me. What? Why would you not cost reduce your console? Especially because the six nanometer shrink is like so cheap. It uses all the same design rules. Requires not that not an enormous amount of engineering work. Certainly, relative to the amount of work it would need to you know to port that to five nanometers or four nanometers. So it seems like the easiest yeah. thing. And Sony even did it without an external box redesign. So that's not even necessarily yeah. part of the plans, right? So that's got kind of one thing, you know, why would you can these new revised Xboxes when they're clearly so far along in development, supposedly coming sort of Q4 2024. And, you know, it's a chance to refresh the range and um, save some money, you know. And of course, even if you've got your Xbox coming in, your new Xbox coming in 2026, um, well, you know, that's still two years right. of <laughs> Xbox series on the market. Um, so the concept of those refreshes being canned, uh, I'd love to see the actual reasoning behind that, if it is true. I mean, I'd, what we've seen of them, I mean, the Series S one looks fine. The Series X one, uh, dumping the optical drive, I think it's a really bad move. I think, you know, the adorably all-digital Series X is far from adorably adorable <laughs> in any way. Yeah, nothing adorable <laughs> about that. Well, that, um, you know, even if, if physical games are not that important to Microsoft, it's still, that would essentially be uh, sacrificing all remaining shelf space around the world to the comp competition. It's like, fine, we don't care yeah. about stores at all. So we don't care about, you know, Amazon stuff. We don't care about any of this stuff. You guys have it all, right? Like, even if they yeah. don't have the majority there, that's like giving, giving something up. And I feel like that's not smart. <laughs> mm. Uh, moving on to the 2026 Xbox, um, the FTC leak um, had a very detailed slide which showed Microsoft's roadmap all the way up to 2028. And the importance of this slide is that it demonstrates how long it takes to develop a console. Um, so if you look at the, how detailed that slide is and the amount of work that is required to make a console and then lop two years out of it, that's quite a challenging undertaking. And you can actually see in that slide, you know, that at this point, they've basically decided what the silicon is going to be like. And then, you know, uh, several years from now, we'll end up with, you know, final production consoles. Mm -hmm. So all of that stuff that's happening in that slide has got to be compressed down uh, to accommodate a 2026 launch. How would you do that? I mean, I'm guessing there are ways where you can accelerate the, um, you know, the architectural design, stuff like that. You know, there may well be stuff happening at AMD itself that uh, Microsoft can piggyback on rather than going for the sort of more traditional custom SOC. Um, so that is a, a potential route forward there. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm just curious about this. In terms mm. of getting a 2026 console ahead of uh, Sony in 2028, I can see that there would be good reasons for that because... Uh, the pace of technological advancement is slowing with, you know, process node shrinks, that kind of thing, which is basically the big enabler for allowing for new technology. And um, it may well be the case that the console you can make in 2026 um, needn't be that less powerful than the console that you make in 2028. So, you know, from a strategic perspective, 
getting a better machine out than the competition in 2026 might there could be shades of the 360 about it. Oh, Do you know what I mean? Rich, what about this though? When you think about the way modern game development works and the, the third parties and everything, what you would di different? What would be the difference between what they're talking, what we're talking about here, versus say like an Xbox One X or a PS4 Pro situation? Because like, I would assume that most games would still target both platforms. So the the PlayStation Five Pro, if that happens, would still be on the docket. Uh, they're not going to do like these massive visual upgrades just for one console, I'd imagine, right? Or exclusive yeah. titles necessarily outside of Microsoft itself. Uh, so what? I, I guess what would separate that from like a pro machine? That's what I'm um, wondering. There's got to be basically much closer. I mean, we've discussed this in the past. There's got to be much closer alignment with the PC space, right? Mm. And if you look at what NVIDIA are doing in the PC space at the moment, it's significantly beyond what's happening on consoles. And you've got to have that similar feature set. And they're talking about it in the concept document that was leaked in the FTC, you know, frame generation, um, machine learning based upscaling. Uh, all of that stuff has got to be in the next console. Some of it may well be in the PS5 Pro, but again, probably for compatibility reasons, the Pro has got to be quite similar to the base PlayStation 5. Mm -hmm. um, whereas, you know, the concept of aligning more closely with what's happening in the PC space, I think is just a net win, particularly when you're looking to produce something like Game Pass, where you want the same games playable across a whole bunch of systems. You know, by the time 2026 comes about, there's not going to be so many, you know, the, the, the graphics cards, for example, you know, you, all of them will be RT capable. Mm -hmm. uh, presumably with far better capabilities than, uh, the, than the current generation consoles. I'd say it's a good jumping on point. I think my question is just, you know, can it actually be achieved by that sort of timescale? Mm, yeah. Um, because, you know, 2026, it means that by the end of 2025, you need final silicon ready yeah. going into production. And that's, you know, we're, mo we're moving into 2024 next year. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not that far <laughs> ahead. To me, I think the interesting thing about this is that it wouldn't just be a shift from their plans as of May of 2022 from a hardware perspective. It would also sort of be a shift from a philosophical perspective, because when you look at that slide, what they're talking about is like mixed hardware and cloud compute, right? Applying yeah. it in various areas, including AI. And that is a very like uh, cloud-centric, not client-centric pitch. And like looking forward, Microsoft has all kinds of AI investments and they're partnering with OpenAI. And I'd expect they would differentiate themselves by introducing a lot of AI features that they can deploy throughout Microsoft that then they can deploy in the games. And maybe that's in the development side as well and all kinds of crazy things like that. But that doesn't necessarily have to do a lot with the boxed hardware that you buy in the store. It could probably be translated in, in into concepts that would run on an Xbox Series console, as well as it would run on a on a fifth gen Xbox console. So why would you be so pushy about getting that new hardware out the door when really your fundamental differentiator is not the box, it's the services, right? So it would be a total right. shift in that respect as well. There is a gigantic investment in in AI based compute going on in the cloud at the moment. So maybe 2026 is viable from that perspective. Mm -hmm. uh, again, it, it would be a sort of shift in the whole basis of gaming required to actually make that sort of investment worthwhile. But I guess those resources will also be used 
for a whole manner of other tasks as well. And maybe that is a differentiating factor, right? Because Sony won't have that. Um, the question is whether developers are really interested right. in it. Right. That's the thing. It comes down to the software, right? You need people yeah. to make this stuff. And if if we say by 2026 this actually happens, think about the, the degree of variation between platforms in the market. At the bottom end, you'll have whatever's coming next for Nintendo, right? And yeah. then all mm-hmm. the way up through this, uh, with the rising costs in development, how many studios can actually afford to just target one specific platform, right? Yeah. How can, yeah. to take advantage of specific features, you kind of need to do that to some degree. Yeah. And I feel like there's just not going to be enough there to do it. Microsoft on its own probably wouldn't necessarily be able to support the whole platform. No, nobody could, <laughs> except for maybe Nintendo. But uh, you know you know what I mean? Like there's there's just, like having this kind of technology potentially could be interesting. Uh, not that I'm a cloud fan, obviously, but... Uh, <laughs> You know, you you need the games to support that and getting yeah. that software made, getting studios on board. That's tough. I think it wouldn't be like the 360 generation when you had titles like Dead Rising and Full Auto and like Lost Planet coming out within the first year or so of the console's life cycle right. from interested third parties. Yeah, Grog, <laughs> Ghost Recon Advanced Warfighter, of course. Very great game. That were coming out within the first year of that console's life cycle just because they were targeting a more advanced hardware spec. And there was no uh, competing PlayStation on which to launch those games, right? It's not like that situation. These games will be cross-gen up and down the spectrum, right? They'll be running on potentially a Mm. PS5 Pro as well. The differentiation on the software side probably won't be that profound. You know, it'll be be an iterative device from from the perspective of the game developers. So I don't really see what enormous benefit Microsoft gets from getting new hardware out there when you know the games are going to be thoroughly cross-gen anyways and run virtually everything right i mean they've got to mm. interesting i guess we're going to be tracking that one uh, the, the concept of a 2026 xbox i just say look at that slide though it's really packed there's a lot of work to do in making a new console mm-hmm. and they, as i said the concept of truncating that by two years man that's that's going to be tricky uh let's move on to the next news topic uh, john i'm going to hand over to you on this because uh, it's all about uh, unfinished business with your grand uh, grand Turismo 7 versus Forza Motors- Motorsport content. Yes, that's right. That's right. So uh, essentially in that video, if you watch it to the end, I ran a little quiz show called Name That Game, uh, where I presented eight different slides, essentially, uh, featuring a screenshot from either Gran Turismo 7 or Forza Motorsport and asked people to choose which game they thought it was. And I have since monitored the results. Uh, out of you know, a lot of people watched the video. About ten thousand people responded to the poll. That's a lot of response. It's pretty yeah. good uh, for something like that. So I'm happy with that. Uh, I can report some averages though. First of all, the overall average score, uh, and this is weird because it's like out of eight, but it's fifty nine percent. So the average score is four point six nine. So basically you know people on average got a little over half of them correct so (laughs) and some people there are people that got all of them wrong and there's people that got (laughs) all of them right so uh have you got any numbers for those i do have individual individuals for each shot 
Okay, so looking at all these images then to get the more specifics on it, the one that actually the people struggled with the most is actually images, image three and image seven. And this is uh, because it was almost a 50-50 split in terms of guesses. So image seven was actually the uh, Corvette ZR1 interior uh, where which was actually GT7. And you can kind of okay. make out the, the plastics and the differentiation in those plastics and the way the light reflects off the dashboard. That's very characteristic of the way GT does the cockpits. But to me, it shows that stuff that's like instantly obvious to my eye and one of its strengths. But obviously, a lot of people did not pick up on that. And 48% <laughs> of people got it wrong. <laughs> okay. And it's the same for the... Uh, I did a close-up of an older Corvette uh, where it just shows kind of the badge with some striping on it. And it you can see a reflection of the headlight. This is actually a photo mode shot uh, in the body itself. But it's it's pretty vague. This one is actually pretty tough because... Uh, it's at night, so you don't see the material properties as well. This was actually a GT7 shot. 52% of people guessed Forza. <laughs> I guess really looking at overall data, it was harder than I expected, but I'm glad that people gave it a shot, and I hope people enjoyed uh, taking that little test. And it was fun to see what people sort of internalized from the video. And yeah, that's kind of that's kind of the basics. And I don't know. It just kind of came to me at the end of the project that, wait, I should quiz people on this. It's just like a fun <laughs> little thing. And I'm happy with how that turned out. And I'm glad we got some of those numbers. Uh, well, the- ten, ten, you got 10,000 responses and the videos on about 320,000 views. That's a, basically a 3.1% um, conversion rate, which bearing in mind the nature of the quiz is actually pretty damn awesome i'd say yeah actually that is kind of cool because that you're right it requires watching pretty much to the end of the video uh and then having enough interest to go down into the description box which may not be available on every platform you're watching youtube on uh and then click on that link and then go through the quiz but a good amount of people did just that so do you actually have any takeaways from those results though that people just can't really tell the difference or they can marginally uh, uh, still, it kind of suggests that they're both really great looking games, which I think was one of the points that you that were was one of the mm-hmm. points exactly. And this to me, this kind of answers some questions about the specifics. So the things that like you and I and Alex and Oliver that we look at and just can instantly identify based on the underlying rendering tech and the different approaches doesn't seem to be so obvious to the the average viewer, the average video enjoyer. Uh, which is kind of what I guessed it, guessed before doing this video and kind of what I wanted to prove with this quiz was that, yeah, this stuff is, is very obvious to some people, but to the majority, it's not. They, they won't actually necessarily appreciate or, or see the difference at all. And that's kind of what these results, even though it's a small sample, it's what the results kind of bear out, I think, is that people mm-hmm. actually struggled to figure this out. So... Yeah, cool stuff. Let's move on to our final news story. Um, and it's actually something which one of our supporters on the DF supporter program, Alan, the legendary Alan, put together. Uh, he <laughs> was quite interested in putting together some community awards. And it all took place on our Discord on the DF supporter program. And we have results. And um, I think we'll start off by uh, talking about non-games of the year. 
2024 most hyped game. Uh, there's actually two games which are of equal importance to our supporters. Uh, Dragon's Dogma 2, Final Fantasy VII Rebirth. Interesting stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Any thoughts on that one, John? Yeah, I mean, those are all, <laughs> those are also high on my list, so uh, <laughs> I kind of agree. I, I would have to give the edge to Final Fantasy VII Rebirth, but right. both look awesome, really excited for them. But I was happy to see, as the list goes down, there's some other really good stuff on there, like Warhammer 40k Space Marine 2 is on there, mm-hmm. uh, which is nice to see. Uh, I'm also surprised to see Tomb Raider 1 through 3 remastered. But, you know, knowing the DF audience, I can absolutely see why they would be interested in playing something like that, right? Yeah. I noticed Astro's Playroom VR is on there, which is uh, news to me. That does not exist. Uh, yes. And I don't think it will exist. I, you know, I'm not actually that confident that we're going to get something like that. But it, to me, yeah. that shows that that's what that's what Sony missed on the PSVR two side. Like <laughs> right. that game, the original Astro Astrobot on PSVR one is the best game on PSVR by far, and still one of the most enjoyable VR games ever made. I'd say, and the fact that they weren't able to follow that up, uh, it's and people love the included demo with the uh, PS five as well. Like that they didn't follow that up is insane to me, but at the same time, I, I would actually, I could see them having been working on a sequel to this, but my guess is that it would actually be a regular PlayStation five game and not a VR game because they had a hybrid. No, that's a good point. That could, the only thing that would, that would mess that up is that it would take away some of the, like a lot of the specific mechanics and things that happen in Astro rely on it being VR, but so it would lose some of the VR impact, but that's still feasible. But anyway, next, uh, next category. Uh, we're going to go for VR game here, uh, including VR DLC. Uh, winner was Gran Turismo 7 there. Um, <laughs> uh, which I don't think you can really argue with that, can you? Or, or can you? Because you've been doing a lot of VR playing uh, and, and enjoying this year, right, John? Yeah, actually, I'm more on the, the second uh, choice here, which is C-Smash VRS. I think Gran Turismo 7 is perhaps a more impactful and insane kind of thing to play in VR, but it's also like, it's just adapting a non-VR game to VR, right? And it's cool to play it that way, but it is it's a slightly different category than a game made from the ground up for VR and C smash, I think is really freaking, I I'm happy to see it here. Cause that's just, it's just a joyous game to play. Uh, I love the original on dreamcast arcade. I ha- actually have the Naomi cartridge for it now, which is cool. Mm. Um, and being able to play that in VR and it's an original game too. It's got a lot of cool stuff in there. It's just, it's, it's so fun. I think it's the most interesting and enjoyable thing that PSVR two got this year. So, okay. but they also put Gorilla Tag and Resident Evil Village on here. <laughs> and Gorilla Tag seems to have captured quite the audience. I still need to try that. It looks it looks very silly, but I haven't actually played it yet. Are you doing much VR these days, uh, Oliver? I did play a fair bit of Gran Turismo Seven, and it's one of the very few PSVR two games I've actually dug my teeth into. I guess it would have to be my number one VR game of the year. Re Four just hit, dude. RE4, RE4 VR just hit, and maybe maybe I'll check that out later over the holidays. But uh, GT7 VR, it's it's really well implemented, um, works fantastically well. I don't have it with the wheel, unfortunately. I sold my racing wheel some years ago, so 
right, maybe you need to try it with that. But it just seems... Uh, Don't buy seems, a racing wheel. <laughs> yeah, that's Again. always the classic advice. <laughs> but it, it certainly seems like, you know, a, a terrific conversion of, of the game to VR. So I'm not surprised that it would be number one. And of all the Sony first-party titles, it seems like the most compelling one by far. So I guess by default it kind of wins, or maybe the Resident Evil conversions would be would be up there. But yeah, it's just a, it's slightly slim pickings, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Let's go on to the main sort of games of the year then. Uh, we'll start at number three, Alan Wake 2. Uh, number two, Legend of Zelda, Tears of the Kingdom. Uh, number one, Baldur's Gate Three. Oh. I don't think you could really argue too much with that lineup, can you? No, I mean Baldur's Gate. Baldur's Gate Three is a weird one. That's a that's a game that could conceivably make a list that I might make, but due to the time commitment required, and I've only put like twenty hours into it, and I love it, but mm-hmm. it's a game that I've not explored enough to to say that right. Like mm. I kind of made it where I needed to play pretty much through the game before I could conceivably feel good with including it on a list and that's one i didn't but people love baldur's gate 3 so i absolutely understand that being the number one pick here okay cool uh, any any sort of feedback on that one oliver uh my own personal game of the year is a little bit further down this list than in the top three yeah don't don't spoil it it's, it's i'm not gonna video. spoil it i'm not gonna spoil it okay uh, but I mean, overall, I mean, all the all the stars are here in terms of the top rated games of the year. Yeah, I mean, there's not too much to quibble with, outside of the fact that Quake Two is on here. I don't know about that. That does not seem like a game that was released in 2023, or at least not originally. Um, well, no, well, no, but it got that remaster. Good to get that remaster, remaster included that entirely new campaign. Oh, that's true. Games, that's true. That's true. Which was yeah. awesome. Yeah, yeah. So maybe that I think counts. the big shock here is that Spider Man Two was number eleven. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Yeah. yeah, that's pretty much the only thing that really stands out. But yeah, interesting stuff there. Uh, hopefully, we can expand that next year because it was just a Discord only thing. So uh, yeah, that was maybe fun. sort of yeah, good fun Look, there. Looking Wait. at the top ten here, though, if we go to number four, it's Robocop Rogue City. Five, Resident Evil Four Remake. Six, Super Mario Wonder. Seventh is tied between Lies of P and Metroid Prime Remastered. Weird how we got a tie. We also got a tie for eighth, which is Hogwarts versus Hi-Fi Rush. Then we got nine, which is Cyberpunk 2077, <laughs> Phantom Liberty, followed by 10, which is Armored Core 6. Mm. And there's, that's a lot of good stuff on, on this list. And some that I might you might say I agree with. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. Uh, well, that's it. That's the end of the news uh, for this direction for this year. But I'm just going to leave you with uh, some of the content that we got lined up because we're not going to be uh, working over Christmas, but we have been working hard regardless to ensure that there's going to be a lot of stuff for you to watch. So there's going to be um, uh, the top games of the year videos from John, from Oliver, and hopefully Great. from Tom. And there's going to be, oh, wow, a bunch of stuff. A uh, bunch of DF Retro stuff. It looks as though the Road Rash DF Retro will be happening. Yes. Might even be out by the time you see this. Um, what else are we going to be doing? Um, we've got uh, already out, actually would have been happening a few days ago now, the best graphics of the year. People love yep, that. Yep. <laughs> Always gets huge amounts of views. I think we're looking to release that today, which on the day of filming is a Friday. Uh, there's a bunch of DF Retro plays yeah. coming. Some of those are, like, one of them is, uh, well, first of all, we got Sonic Boom in there, Rise of Lyric and the Wii U, where we just kind of befuddle <laughs> our way through that. 
Uh, sticking with the bad stuff, Audie and I did a uh, the worst PS3 slash Xbox 360 retro remakes. And I mean, this the, these are vile. It's like uh, <laughs> Double Dragon 2, Wonder of the Dragons, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Turtles in Time reshelled, stuff like that. And whew, I had never played the Double Dragon 2 one until this video, and it was shocking. <laughs> yeah uh there's a there's a whole bunch of stuff happening worst pc ports of the year i mean right. we don't typically like one. to concentrate on the negative but things needs to change on that one and there's some stink i watched that video the other day there's some stinkers in there <laughs> i think it's fair to say um oh and uh alex has literally just delivered his uh alan wake 2 tech interview we actually had some right. access uh, to the remedy guys there and um yeah deep dive into the technology of Alan Wake 2, which I'm really looking forward to watching. Um, yeah, so a big bunch of stuff happening and um, a huge amount of DF content that should tide you through the rest of December going into January. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's some stuff I've even, I'm looking at the list now, there's some stuff which uh, we might even have too much content so, yeah, we may sort of slip into the new year. But there's some stuff that's been on our retro oh. tier for a while now. For example, um, John and Audie's top three Game Boy classics. Oh, yeah. That's a that's uh, a fun one. There's other ones coming up, by the way, that's interesting. And one that I just recorded yesterday uh, with Mark from My Life in Gaming. We did Batman Arkham Oranges. 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 <laughs> Batman Arkham Origins, uh, which was the WB Montreal game that was skipped the Switch collection. And we thought, hey, what if we did, you know, in honor of that Switch? Do I want to say in honor? I don't know if in honor is the right word because it was pretty terrible. But uh, the, the Switch ports of the first three uh, Rocksteady developed Arkham games, we decided to look at this one as well with a Wii U versus PC uh, blowout. And it wow. was, it was mm. fun because the Wii U version... It has some weird Wii U exclusive features that use the gamepad, uh, like holding up the gamepad and moving it around with gyro. Uh, but the PC has stuff like physics and all these DX11 features in there. Uh, and, you know, is it better than the Switch ports? Spoiler, yeah, but maybe, you know, maybe, <laughs> well, the maybe, maybe there's still, yeah, Wii U. But maybe it's still not that good. You'll see. Yeah. It's, it's a fun one to get into, and it kind of reminded me of that awkward period for the Wii U. Yeah, the Sonic Boom uh, DF retro play, the, the misbegotten decision to somehow crow, crowbar CryEngine onto the Wii U. It's a lot of Wii U stuff happening here. Yeah, the Wii U is just like, it's in this weird spot now where it's like, it's over 10 years old now. And it's just kind of, we're thinking back to this like strange time for Nintendo where like the Wii U was, it was a, a gigantic flop, right? But there, <laughs> yes. yeah, there, there was good stuff on there. Absolutely. But there's also some really weird stuff on there. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> like and this. it also yeah. like laid the foundation for like all the most popular franchises and games on the Switch. So it was really <laughs> right a very important console, <laughs> you know, very important console. Well, you know, the, the Wii U uh, generation wasn't really that much of a failure because all of the key titles came to Switch and sold extremely well. By the look <laughs> yeah. of it. Like freaking uh, Mario Kart Eight, that, yeah, that was a Wii U title, and now it's like one of the best-selling games like Nintendo's ever had, or something. Like, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's ridiculous. <laughs> Okay, that's that. Lots of stuff to look forward to. But let's move on to supporter Q&A, which is the part of the show where every week we uh, ask our supporters to put forth a bunch of questions. We choose the best or other the ones which we have the time or the competence to address. And uh, we're going to start with this one from Gunsight1. 
one in block capitals. Uh, with UE games finally starting to trickle out, the rumoured specs of console refreshes and the upcoming Switch successor, do you think 2024 will be the year for pervasive ray tracing? Should it be an expectation for upcoming games like GTA? Uh, well, Oliver, we've kind of taken a look at the GTA trailer. It kind of suggests that that might be the case. Yeah, I mean, with GTA in particular, we kind of fingered um, RT Reflections and RTGI there. <laughs> basically <laughs> that title uh in Sorry. terms of games in 2024 uh yeah i mean i think so because ray tracing is just such a great way to solve for lighting in games I, I mean i would personally expect most upcoming games over the next year or two to use at least one or two ray tracing Wait, techniques really or... interesting uh, well ue5 is going to be everywhere for starters isn't it not everywhere yeah. but yeah I th ue5 titles yes will probably use those features yeah but... Maybe, like maybe among that. the upper tier of triple A, yes. maybe there's some yeah, yeah. some dregs and still some like weird kind of cross gen holdovers. But I mean, I would expect to see a ton of games ship with RT uh, over the next year or two. And in terms of the Switch Two, I'm less certain. Certainly, some things will run in it in a performant way. At least we presume from the Matrix Awakens uh, demo and from uh, Rich's explorations of what comparable PC hardware can deliver. But in terms of matching the consoles in, in every game with the, the similar RT features, probably not. But but I expect that'll be a part of it as well. Mm -hmm. Okay, fair enough. Um, anything to add to that, John? Uh, not really. <laughs> no. Outside of okay. what I did. I mean, just I'm skeptical that I think RT is just so expensive still on these consoles. It just requires so I much. And when, well... It's a, it's thing a, is, if you're launching look, on Xbox, especially, and you got the Series S down there, it's it can be well, pretty tough. Avatar to get that going. did it, you know. Yeah, but well. not everybody is uh, massive. Yeah, that's true. Fair <laughs> enough. We'll see. Though I, guess we, I hope we'll, it becomes we'll more common. I hope so. Mm -hmm, absolutely. I'm just very curious to see where Nvidia is going to go next with their stuff because you know that's sort of setting the trend for the ultra high end, and we've seen some amazing stuff there so far. So. Hoping that there's going to be more there in 2024. Also, I'm really curious to see, and this is completely off on a tangent here. Um, Alex talks about it last week, that Intel frame gen technology. Mm, right. Uh, how that actually shakes out. Um, but let's move on to the next question. This one from Sven Darlin. Uh, have you had a chance to look at Resident Evil 4 on iPhone slash iPad slash Mac? Does the latest Apple Silicon finally make gaming on Apple platforms viable? Uh, I guess we can give a quick spoiler on this one because you are looking at it right um oliver yeah i have been looking at it i think probably the biggest improvements that stick out to me are just improvements in the way that capcom is choosing to handle the hardware in terms of configuration so you don't have that byzantine settings menu with certain selections that can cause the game to repeatedly crash and things like this i think that was a very poor decision for resident evil village and that's totally gone now um there are a handful of options but like it's things like a chromatic aberration and stuff like that the typical stuff you'd see in like console titles um there are some lingering problems with some occasional stutter but nothing at least so far and i've only played like maybe 30 or 40 minutes in but you know into some more demanding sections like that opening village fight that are pretty tough um mm. you know there's no as far as I can tell, pervasive issues with consistently low frame rates like I saw in Village, where it would just run at 20 FPS for long periods with horrible, horrible stutter. That doesn't seem to be an issue, at least not so far, you know, I guess cross my fingers on that one, but, but so far it does seem better. So 
yeah, I think that it is running a lot better. Um, I don't know exactly what to chalk that up to. Obviously, it's the same engine. Perhaps they've worked more extensively on making that work properly on Apple Silicon devices. But at least on you know a high-end iPhone, it does seem like a pretty competent and enjoyable experience so far. Mm -hmm. Interesting, because we weren't particularly impressed with Village for a whole host oh. of reasons. <laughs> it does seem, sound as though they've made some uh, attempts to... I think it, well, a lot of it may have been a concept of curation, you know, actually getting the right balance for the yeah. hardware, which is really, really difficult to do when you're basically just opening up the PC settings menu for everybody to use and abuse. <laughs> yeah. And uh, there, there, there were no sort of guardrails in place on there for, for users, yeah. you know, who'd have just ramped up everything to max, apart from the VRAM yeah. uh, meter kind of sort of suggested you might run out of memory but yeah i was surprised <laughs> yeah i think they've made some pretty sensible choices so far at least from what i've seen it looks a lot like the playstation 4 code it's running with uh i believe the metal fx temporal upsampler certainly very uh smooth looking image uh not much aliasing but some artifacting here and there obviously running at a low resolution internally so i think they've made some you know probably the appropriate choices and most importantly it's not crashing every 15 seconds or something like you could get with Resident Evil Village, which it's not a fan of. Fair enough. Okay, let's move on to the next question. This one from 39 Digits. Uh, yesterday, I decided to finally load up Alan Wake 2 on PC, and it highlighted something I'd never really noticed before with any other game. And this one's in block capitals. IPS Glow. Oh my God. <laughs> I have a 4K 140 hertz, 144 hertz IPS display and love everything about it, or so I thought until now. Other content has looked vibrant and the high refresh rate transforms the feeling of many action games. Alan Wake 2 is the first game to be a problem. From the very first prologue sequence, the dark mood of the game is completely blown out on the sides of the panel thanks to IPS Glow. So bad that the entire scene feels like there is a fuzzy halo around the edges completely ruining the experience. All detail is lost in the haze. Improves once you get to the next sequence where you're playing a saga, but I fear there will be many dark moments to come that will suffer the same halo effect. I tried viewing the content from a greater distance and that helped, but it's not realistic on a mouse and keyboard setup to sit far away from one's desk. Do you have any advice for reducing the impact of IPS glow on titles like Alan Wake 2, or is the only option to wait for cheaper high refresh rate OLED displays? It's not not much that can be done about this, is right, John. This is like oh my the gosh. nature of the yeah. This of the this this question comment is like right up my alley in that this is this is fundamentally one of the key reasons why I have never liked LCD technology. Uh, I think it's I think LCDs are generally bad, and this is one of the reasons it just destroys contrast and image quality across any content that's not exceptionally bright. Uh, there are some solutions on TV, such as local dimming, but that's often limited, especially when using game mode. And even then you get halos, you get other, there's other artifacts with it that I also find unsightly. Uh, unfortunately in the PC space, local dimming is exceptionally rare. So most yeah. screens, it's not just IPS, it's all LCDs. There are a difference between like VA panels are slightly darker, but they still glow pretty bad. Uh, and but IPS is one of the worst, but yeah, the, I, the problem is you display anything dark. If you just put like a black image on the screen and you're in a dark room, it, all you see is backlight basically. Yes. Uh, and the problem there is like, if you have colorful stuff around the screen or like lit stuff elsewhere, but then you have shadowed darker areas, uh, it, it, you really just see the backlight. And I remember the first time I actually tried using an LCD for gaming was in 2004 
uh, I tried Doom 3 on an LCD. That is a very dark game. And that was the moment when I was like, wow, this is this technology sucks <laughs> compared to a CRT at the time. And it really did. And it still does with this. They have not solved this problem. Local dimming is the only attempt at really solving it. And that still is not perfect, I would say, uh, which is why the only, well, without buying something new for 39 digits here, I the one suggestion I would have that has helped a little bit for dark games when playing on an LCD is to turn the brightness or the back, turn the backlight all the way to zero. If you do this, the game itself, the image will become pretty dim. Yeah, but for dark content, that's not a huge problem, I would say. It actually can add a little bit to the mood. You're still going to get glow, but it definitely is less pronounced, I would say. So that is one suggestion uh, I have. But really, the only the only real solution to this is to get a display that doesn't have this problem. So on the modern side, that's going to be OLED. Uh technically also crts you know if you get a good crt pc monitor you know you play that in a dark room at a high refresh rate that's gonna absolutely crush every lcd that's ever been made in terms of like how it handles contrast and black scenes yeah. uh, provided it's a healthy crt but i think oled is the way to go especially for something like this alan Wake 2 looks amazing on an oled screen uh but now that I've finished here kicking LCD, you know, in the nuts a few times and then like rolling it around on the ground, Oliver, you are an <laughs> LCD user. So I think you probably want to interject. So by yeah. all means, jump so, in. So I would say there, there are two separate aspects to this, right? There's the <laughs> normal glow of the backlight, which on an IPS panel can be pretty nasty, especially at higher brightness levels, but you don't have great contrast yeah. there. So, so it will be very noticeable in a lot of content, especially if you're looking at a game like Alan Wake 2. Then there's kind of like this specific issue of IPS glow, which is like off-axis viewing where you get the kind of bright spots in the corners. Um, unfortunately, neither of these issues is really resolvable, I don't think, without buying a new display. Personally, I've noticed that higher-end IPS panels with better QC maybe don't tend to exhibit as much IPS glow. Like right now, I'm looking at an Apple Studio display here. I have an all-black image on screen. I'm seeing very little of the glow in the corners, a little bit of the glow in the corners, but not too bad. But of course, you do still have that um, pretty profound backlight glow coming through the screen, just not in the corners, right? Just about the fundamental characteristics of the panel. So yeah, I mean, I think that uh, VA panels, a good VA panel that can hit like 5,000 to one or 7,000 to one contrast on the panel natively. Um, that will that will be all right for darker content, but really the, the ultimate solution here would be to get uh, an OLED panel um, or, maybe a, or maybe a VA panel with uh, really good local dimming for this kind of content. Uh, you're not gonna get a great experience out of an IPS panel at all. Okay, also you've got a good test subject for it now. <laughs> one, one thing to mention here though as well is that uh, Light lighting up your surroundings can help if you do like put backlighting behind your LCD. Yeah. Uh, if you actually just turn the lights on in the room, and also if your panel, uh, I feel like glossy panels help a little bit. Like a glossy panel with bias lighting can actually look kind of okay on there, but a matte LCD in a dark room is always just going to be uh, backlight glow city, uh, you know, but. For those hunting for this kind of, yeah, OLED's the best solution, I think, for modern content. But there's also things beyond the CRT. You could also try to find, like, say, a used uh, Pioneer Plasma, for instance, like the last generation of plasmas. 
not as a PC monitor, mind you, but as like a gaming display, that'll actually give you really great black levels. And I think they're pretty cheap to get if you can find them, you know, again, not that practical, but just for those curious, there are other options for getting good black levels that don't require getting OLEDs. But on the PC side, I feel like since I've switched to a 42 inch LG OLED TV as my PC monitor, it's the best PC monitor I've ever used. Like it's, it's the perfect size. It has none of the drawbacks of LCD and it's at the point where these newer models, like I can even put a, f a web browser at full screen on here and it doesn't like noticeably dim the picture anymore. It feels like it has all the strengths of an LCD on the PC side and, and none of the weaknesses. Uh, and, and I'm not, you know, we'll see about burn in. It's been like, eight months or something now that I've been using this thing like hardcore every single day, all day. And I have zero burn in. I think eventually there will probably be something I, I can't say for sure, but I mean, Rich, you've been using an LG CX since 2020 as yeah, your no PC problems. monitor and you don't have any issues at all. So, and I don't think we're taking any precautions either. No, not anymore. Since I moved to windows 11, my taskbar is always present, yep, which same. is like a, yeah. Uh, going back to 39 digits stuff, uh, his, his question, he, he seems to be quite keen on high refresh rate. Uh, there are those, there was the announcement oh. recently of those LG uh, 240 Hertz 4K displays, right. 42 mm -hmm. inch, uh, and with a 1080p 480 <laughs> Hertz option. True. Yeah, I've got to see that. <laughs> you're right. So that's the thing is the, the PC, mo the OLED PC monitors tend to be pretty expensive, right? Uh, the LG TVs, they do max out at 120 Hertz, which I think is perfectly yeah. adequate, especially if you're driving 4Ks worth, worth of pixels. But the PC monitors in OLED spec do tend to go higher. And yeah, there's some really high refresh rate ones. And they might be worth looking at, but they're going to be smaller and probably more expensive. Uh, but maybe that's exactly what would fit this need here and it would definitely be worth looking at, especially mm -hmm. if you want to say go with ultra wide. Uh, but it looks like he's only running up to 144 hertz, which yeah. I think the jump between 120 and 144 is pretty minuscule, yeah. to like non-existent. Yeah. And when it comes to like running your desktop, like I think you want to stay within um, uh, refresh rates that are dis divisible by 60 because uh, all video content and a lot of stuff is still designed to run at 60. And if you're at like 144, even with VRR, it doesn't look right. So just normal mm -hmm. desktop usage, you either want 120 or 240 or 480, I guess, if, if you're running some crazy stuff here. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's move on to the next question. This one from Sir Callalot. Hello, chaps, exclamation point. Another year and another lineup of incredible content from DF, exclamation point. Uh, on, that night, on that note, what are John's thoughts on another specialist DF Retro episode akin to DF Retro H2O? Perhaps the history of gr gr grass slash fur slash hair entering in games. These tricky real-time effects have always fascinated me and there have been many intelligent there has been so much intelligent problem solving we can learn from from devs by looking at how things were done in the past. Yeah, yeah that, that water ret retro kind of took off, didn't it, in ways we didn't expect. Could it be yeah. sequeled? I should I I have thought about doing a follow-up to this on exactly this type of thing. You know, uh, there's all, all sorts of things, even something as simple as like lens flares and games taking us up through God rays and stuff, right? Things like that would be fun and interesting. Um, it's just a thing of time. Hopefully if I can continue to 
you know, get more people on board to help me actually make the retro content next year. We can actually get more done this time. So I feel like mm. I didn't make nearly as much as I wanted this year. Uh, it was a very busy year on other fronts. So, but this is an idea I've been kicking around and wanting to get back into because I had a lot of fun making that water episode. And I think there's, there's a ton of potential in that area uh, just for visual effects and games and how they've evolved. Mm-hmm. Are those suggestions uh, good ones or are there other ones you've been thinking about? Uh, let me think here. Like I said, there was the sun glare one, like this the lens flare slash God rays yeah. kind of thing. Uh, I've, the grass was something I had thought about as well. Just like foliage in games, basically. Yeah, that's always been tricky. Which is, I think is a really interesting one. I also thought about stuff like like sky rendering, like clouds and such, and the way, mm-hmm. you know, developers tried to make really attractive s- clouds and sky boxes and stuff over the years and how that changed. Um, and there's probably, there's there's a bunch of others I had in, in mind at one point. I need to think back and recollect what they were, but yeah. Okay. Let's move on to the next question. This one from uh, uh, Concrete Llama for Oliver, by the look of it. Uh, In the graphics of the year video, when discussing Alan Wake 2, Oliver said it's a hard game to pick apart because it looks so good and at a level that I almost have trouble critiquing. And this made me wonder, in X years when affordable hardware can run path-traced games at 60 FPS plus, what will actually be left to critique from a technological perspective other than the performance of the games? Is there a next step after path-tracing that we could look forward to, uh, to not being able to afford, or are we on the cusp of real-time rendering perfection? I think we're quite a way off from that, Yeah, Oliver. Yeah, I think yeah. just in the realm of ray tracing, like I think there will still be a lot to critique because ray tracing involves a lot of compromises and simplifications to get it running in real time at all. So getting like a pristine path traced output with minimal noise, a stable image without over darkening and with practically infinite range and solving all these problems, I think that'll be a very hard problem. Um, I think there will always be almost almost always be certain issues that you can point to and say that's not good enough even if even if they mm-hmm. might be marginal at some point you also need to have very high asset quality with a lot of real geometry instead of texturing tricks because ray tracing tends to expose that in games like cyberpunk in particular where you know you begin to notice like oh yeah that's a normal map that's not real geometry ray tracing uh, really requires uh, a, a lot of real geometry to really look really good and consistent across a range of assets which you're not always seeing and then in like in terms of the step after path tracing, uh, my own personal <laughs> uh, thought is to, to to what's what's next in computer graphics or what's like the endpoint of computer graphics. I think it probably looks something like neural rendering, where the game is generating images and that's modified by some kind of generative uh, generative AI imaging model. Um, I think that could lead to some uh, like frankly incredible visual results, uh, but there are a huge amount of hurdles in terms of getting quality up and getting it running at a good resolution in real time and getting enough temporal consistency and enough consistency through the environment to actually make it work properly. But I, I kind of think that's, that would be the next, uh, very interesting area <laughs> of graphics rendering that I'm sure we're going to see people explore over the coming, coming years. Mm-hmm. Anything to add to that, John? Oh, no, I think you said it pretty uh, well there, Oliver. Yeah. Um, I think it's just the case that, standards shift right you know mm-hmm. there are some games on xbox 360 that you just couldn't believe the quality of when you first saw it but <laughs> they are of an age now 
I mean, you know, going back, there was a, a certain period, I think it began in 2007, where you started to see games like Assassin's Creed, which just looked absolutely phenomenal. And, uh, you know, I remember when I saw um, uh, God of War 3 on PS3, you know, that initial Poseidon level, I was thinking, man, if they've got some sort of software emulator for a PS4 in here, this looks like completely beyond anything I've ever seen on this generation of hardware. It's just, you know, I guess it is just the, you know, the, the graphics of the time, the shifting goalposts, things do evolve and get better. But I have to agree with you, Oliver, it really is difficult to yeah. critique Alan Wake's two visual. Yeah, visual. actually, yeah. you know, when you say that, maybe something that does come to mind is that it's really important to remember is that a lot of the stuff that you, a lot of the best visuals, it's not just due to the underlying rendering technologies. It's like the pure talent that went into the artistic makeup of creating that game, right? Making sure everything fits together perfectly with that great fit and finish. Uh, that stuff's really hard to do well. And that's something mm -hmm. you see in just like the highest end productions, uh, and I think, you, you know, that's not just a thing that's going to get better as hardware increases. That's, in fact, I'd say that stuff's getting harder to pull off as the fidelity increases. Like once you get to this point where you've got this, these insanely realistic path traced worlds going on, uh, getting animation, facial expressions, all the, all the things that move and, and, and work within the game world to look natural, it's going to be even harder to pull off. Like Uncan Uncanny Valley is going to be... We're going to pay a visit to Uncanny Valley, I would say. I actually think <laughs> Robocop, which I love, by the way, is a really interesting example because it has some of like the most realistic lighting I've seen. Uh, awesome use of, uh, of Lumen, right? But then you get some of these cutscenes and like the, the, the <laughs> yes. budgetary issues shine through. They're, they're very stiff. They don't, you know, there are, I would say, quite frankly, like the character models in something like Silent Hill 3 on PS2 still look and move better than anything. Robocop, right? And, that's wow. a, and that just shows the difference in artistry there. Uh, there. Our team did an awesome job in the environments. It's just, man, those characters, oof. <laughs> it's, it's not, yeah, let's it's move on to, not good. Let's move on to our final question. This one from Johan Vel Van Hellemont. Uh, hey, guys, thanks for another year. Simply wonderful hashtag content. After all these years, there still isn't really anything else quite like Digital Foundry out there. And it's because of the weekly efforts and passions of this team that it continues to stand out. As it is the last direct of the year, perhaps it's time to reminisce. What was your favorite Digital Foundry related moment of the year? And yes, this is an opportunity to hand out compliments to your teammates. Um, I've got a couple. Um I think from a content perspective, uh, Alex isn't here, but um, he's kind of like really done a fantastic job of charting the true cutting edge of technology, mm. of gaming technology. And, you know, there's content like uh, RT Overdrive and um, the, most recently the Avatar video, where I've just kind of sat back and watched that video in wonder and just sort of, really appreciated how far we've come in terms of the visual arts and Alex has kind of been our guide into introducing us to all of this and how it works and why it's special and why we should be excited because there's so much uh, negativity in the gaming media space a lot of the time that just having this breathless enthusiasm that's also informative that's also backed by you know the stuff that you're seeing in the video looking so phenomenal it's just a pleasure to watch, basically. Uh, from a strategic and sort of um, release style highlight, Steam Deck OLED came out of nowhere. Didn't know it was coming. 
um, and is excited when I got the product briefing from Valve. But, yeah. you know, the device arrives, you know what a good HDR game is, download it, run it. It didn't disappoint. So that was sort of like another highlight for me. Uh, Oliver, what are your th- thoughts on this one? Yeah, um, just in terms, I guess, of, of the things I, I enjoyed myself this year. Uh, I, I loved covering, like, I got to cover a lot more bigger titles this year, I think just because of scheduling and whatnot. So I got, like, Alan Wake 2, Metroid Prime Remastered, Forza Motorsport, Hi-Fi Rush, Robocop, and Jedi Survivor. Those would be the the highlights in terms of the games I covered. Um, I, I also really enjoyed diving more into Steam Deck this year and then towards the end of the year diving into iPhone gaming, which I think is very interesting. And now we actually have iPhones that that have appropriate hardware to do display output and an Apple that is seemingly very interested in getting AAA games on the platform. So I think that's interesting. And some of the visual results there that you see in some games are are quite phenomenal because the hardware is very capable for a mobile device. I just wanted to pay tribute quickly to some of the stuff you've done, uh, which has been off the beaten path, hasn't just been new game releases. And um, yeah, you come up with pitches that I find really interesting and think, yeah, I've got to got to see that. It's quite interesting that certain things have actually developed into series, like uh, you know the too too big for Steve Tech. For yeah, example. I love that. Yeah, it's great work. Yeah, uh, and I, I'd have to uh, double down and really say that Alex's work in um, exploring the the boundaries of path tracing titles like. Cyberpunk with the RT Overdrive uh, enabled, and um, that's really exciting because you really do see what the frontier of visual rendering looks like in real time, and uh, as as it's being explored in the PC space, and kind of a way that serves as a bit of a preview of other mainstream titles in the future. I have to imagine, and then I love, uh, I always love John's videos. He, he puts so much effort into them and, he, and they're so long and so detailed. I mean, the Forza <laughs> yeah, versus GT video was uh, was <laughs> quite quite a thing of beauty, truly a magnificent video. Spider-Man 2, another classic. Yeah, that, that I, I'm just always super blown away by. Just the, the breadth and focus and the amount of capture and the scripting and the way it all comes together. I'm just super impressed by that stuff. So those, those would be mm-hmm. my highlights for, for the year for sure. I think another invisible thing about your videos, John, is the background research that goes into a lot of them. Yeah, I to, do. to make sure that they are accurate. Yeah, I, I'm really a stickler for this that sort of stuff, and I also like to put history into the videos, of course, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I cannot help. Uh, yeah, so from my side, I was thinking back. One of the ones I really liked, actually, some of the, my favorite moments. I really liked what Oliver did with the uh, Final Fantasy 13 CGI versus 16 real-time <laughs> graphics. Yeah. Because that's that's the kind of stuff that, like, lives in my head a lot anyway. <laughs> Just this, like, have we matched these offline renders in modern games kind of thing? And I thought that was a, that was a really fun one to look at, actually, because... I think we've gotten really darn close and superior in many ways, actually, especially when you compare Final Fantasy 16 there. Those cutscenes are insane. And so that was a really fun video. Yeah, I also really liked... Um, uh, I enjoyed Rich. I, I This is a weird one, but I enjoyed Rich's uh, meltdown. Like, this... this oh, it was it oh. went on for it was like a slow motion car crash of like looking at that WRC game 
because it, it just felt like like you just you just kept posting new data and new new tests and I could almost feel like the indent that must have formed on your desk from banging your head against it. <laughs> well, this was just a small taste of the kind of the flip side of Alex's content this year, which is just <laughs> exasperation on poor PC ports. Right? Yeah. Yes. And speaking yeah. of that, I, I had a lot of fun when we did that three-way video together on The Last of Us Part 1 on PC. Right. And before it was fixed, and like that that mid-spec experience that you that you were stuck with. I had the high-spec one. I Wait, you had Alex, to, oh, Alex was the one with the mid-spec then. Yes. <laughs> yeah. The mid-spec one was the funny one because, woof. <laughs> it was... Uh, I think what was quite interesting from that was that the high-spec experience, and it was like 13900K or 12900K plus a 4090. Yeah. It was, you know, on you could run it at acceptable performance levels, but then once the comparisons were actually factored in, it was like, well, hold on a minute, this isn't right. You know, exactly. what's going on with that texture there? Is, you know, there was profound problems across the whole thing there. Those videos are fun, and I really like We haven't done enough of them this year, the retro time capsules. Hopefully we can catch up on that next year. Yeah, those are super fun. I love doing this, this multi- I guess the yeah. Turok 3 video you're doing is quite similar yep, yep. to that. That is similar to that, because we had Alex and Corey in there. And, you know, so it was Switch versus PC versus N64. So yeah, mm -hmm. in that spirit. I also enjoy uh, yeah. just that approach of taking a new PC title. We also saw it with Ratchet and Clank Rift Apart and doing that kind of deep dive with the three-way comparisons that you guys do. Oh, right. really, yeah, we did that. I remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah that was fun. And of course, the big uh, running Ratchet on a PS4 hard drive. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was a great yeah. moment. Actually, the <laughs> yeah. Ratchet, behind the scenes on that, on the Ratchet video, we actually got halfway through recording it and then Rich's PC like actually died. Remember that? Yeah. yeah. Where it's like, I think the motherboard or something just completely... The board's just... It just, it just, it just failed. It's just like, it went off and you're like, well, I can't get anything out of this. Yes. And then you spent like the next hour like cobbling something back together. Yeah, <laughs> Which that you was did. unfortunate. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, um, it's, it's been a great year overall in terms of content, but... Uh, two more that I... Very challenging. That I really like to, uh, to work on, that I had fun working on, though. One was uh, The Last Hope on Switch, which was oh, yeah. the t Lu clone. Uh, I had uh, so much fun making that video, especially the bullet math part. So that was an absolute joy yes. to work on. That, the that, economy. The economy of bullets in that game. And then, of course, I'm really... The one I'm probably most proud of i guess would be the road rash video which isn't out yet on public just because uh you know leveraging uh other people as well with i worked with Corey on that and uh i had andrew elmore helping me out on the soundtrack side actually so wow. it's it's like the first df retro that has like original music in it which i think gives it like an extra cool vibe that's a little bit different than usual and there's just I put a lot of work into like making uh, graphic design stuff and like animations and doing, you know, all the background, like sh showcase stuff. And it was, it was just a real technical video to make, but it was fun to do. So I'm really happy with how that turned out. Awesome stuff. Um, well, we could go on all day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it has been a, yeah. a year rich in hashtag content for sure. Also a year, which has just been kind of bizarre in many ways because, you know, you can't really acknowledge 2023 without sort of looking at the kind of two-faced nature of it, which is that the games that we saw by and large were just absolutely phenomenal, but at the same time, massive problems with layoffs, um, sort of contraction happening in the business, 
uh, a lot of good people uh, looking for jobs right now, which 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 isn't great. Oh, Hopefully, yeah. they'll sort of uh, you know land gracefully going into twenty twenty four, and you know just generally on the media side, which we can sort of speak a bit more authoritatively about. You know, there's a lot of concerns about AI and whatnot upsetting um, the status quo in terms of the economy and actually being able to pay people. So, yeah, we sort of go into 2024 with hopes, but also sort of guarded um, at levels of expectation there. Mm. But, you know, you look back at the, the games that we enjoyed this year, it's certainly been a, a great, great year. And from our perspective, it's just opened the door to some fantastic videos, which have been a pleasure to share. Um, but that's it. That's the end of DF Direct Weekly number 143, the last one of the year. Uh, like, subscribe, share if you enjoyed it. Ring the bell for whatever uh, may appear or not appear on your phone. DF Supporter Program. Uh, yeah, join us. Join our amazing community. Early access to videos. That best graphics one, uh, which should be out now. That's we're like got a few days head start on that on the premium yep. tiers. Lots of stuff going on there. Um, but just generally, thanks for watching and supporting Digital Foundry in 2023. And uh, yeah, we'll see you next year. Still the only live show, uh, as far as we're aware, on Digital Foundry. Or the... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs>